Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. As I surmised when I recorded my podcast on Wednesday, it seems pretty clear that the Federal Reserve has already returned to quantitative easing. And that didn't take long because they just ended QT and they've already begun QE. Although the Fed is not going to admit that that's what they're doing. I mean, apart from proving me right, which was one of my forecasts from the very beginning, I mean, even before the Fed was talking about ending QE, I said they could never end it before they even started it because I had forecast what the Fed was going to do before they did it. And when they announced quantitative easing, not only did I say it was a mistake, but I said the Fed was checking us into a monetary roach motel from which we could never check out. And it was the delusion that we could check out. The Fed was able to convince the markets that it was a temporary policy and that they would only be doing it in an emergency. And then they would unwind the policy and shrink their balance sheet and do all that stuff. And the market believed them. I mean, I didn't believe them. And I was uh, warning everybody that the Fed was either lying or just didn't know what they were talking about or foolish. Uh, But the markets bought into this nonsense. So clearly, if the Fed was going to go back to quantitative easing, uh, they would basically be admitting that the policy was a failure because the policy was intended to be temporary, not permanent. And if they have to do it again, well, then it proves that it wasn't temporary because now they're right back at it. And again, what I said was by doing quantitative easing and in conjunction with uh, lowering interest rates to zero, they were simply taking a debt problem and making it much bigger by encouraging even more debt. And so once you load up with debt, once you encourage everybody to lever up, well, then you can't pull the rug out from under them. That QE needs to be there forever because if you eventually remove the supports, then everything comes toppling down. Remember, I described what the Fed was convincing everybody they were going to do by making a joke and saying that they were trying to pull a table out from under the cloth and leaving the cloth and the dishes suspended in midair. Remember, that was even part of my my stand-up routine. If you actually haven't seen my stand-up routine, it's on uh, on the YouTube somewhere. You can look it up, Peter Schiff stand-up, but that was uh, worked into that routine. But it was funny, but it was funny because it was true, except no one at the Fed or in the market seemed to appreciate the humor there or how true that was. But, you know, so if the Fed was going back to QE, they would be showing the markets 
that it was not temporary. So they don't want to call it QE for the reasons that I discussed on yesterday's podcast, but I am reading more and more about how the Federal Reserve is actually officially going to announce that it is now going back to expanding its balance sheet. In fact, they're referring to it as like a natural expansion of the balance sheet. You know, what happened to shrinking it back down to where it was before the crisis? No, no, no. Now they're going to naturally let it expand. In fact, yesterday, after the close, we got the balance sheet for the week, and the Fed's balance sheet surged by $75 billion in one week. It went back up to $3.845 trillion. And if you remember, I think just a few weeks ago on the podcast, I pointed out where the balance sheet was, and I said, this is the smallest it's ever going to get, and we'll be back above $3.8 trillion very quickly. Well, now we're at $3.845 trillion. In fact, I think we'll be back above $4 trillion on the Fed's balance sheet before the end of the year, and we'll probably be well above $5 trillion uh, by the end of next year. So the balance sheet will quickly soar to a level that was much higher than it was when the Fed began to shrink it. And again, that will validate another one of my forecasts. Not only did the Fed abort its attempts to normalize interest rates, just like I said they would, uh, but they've also aborted their attempts to normalize or shrink their balance sheet, like I said they would, and now they're blowing it back up again. In fact, there was an interview today with Fed Vice Chair Clarita, and he was talking about the Fed expanding its balance sheet, right? And talked about it like, oh, it's no big deal. Because in the interview, he was kind of asked about quantitative easing, and he just kind of dismissed it, you know, about the balance sheet expansion. And he said, look, you know, this is just central banking 101, right? Central banking 101, which implies business as usual. But, you know, it's probably central banking 101 if you're doing your central banking in a banana republic. Right. But for a country that's supposedly issuing the world's reserve currency, this is not central banking 101. You know, this is this is the way to get an F in in econ 101. This is a disastrous uh, way to run monetary policy. What it is, is debt monetization. Again, Banana Republic Central Banking 101 is how you monetize debt. Right. And that is basically what uh, Clarita is admitting the Federal Reserve is now doing. It's business as usual, right? We have these enormous debts. There is no way that the private sector can fund them, which is why we're seeing all the noise uh, with these repurchase agreements that are going on. And now the Fed is likely to continue doing this every week to try to fill that void with money created out of thin air to replace the legitimate savings that we don't have to finance all the debt that but for the Federal Reserve's you know, slashing of interest rates in QE, we would not have. So to keep this bubble from imploding, uh, we're going back to debt monetization, which is now central banking 101, which means we're about to go through inflation uh, 101, maybe even hyperinflation. And that, of course, again, is the worst case scenario. But that is where these bankers seem to be taking us. Now, despite all of this talk about more quantitative easing, only, you know, by a different name that, you know, it's like everybody's afraid to speak it, but everybody knows what it is. I mean, they're not really fooling anybody uh, with this sleight of hand, right? We know what it is, right? Uh, the markets didn't really get much of a boost. In fact, we broke a three-day winning streak today. The Dow was down just under 160 points, and almost all the losses happened towards the end of the day. In fact, in the final five or 10 minutes, we went from down 100 to down 160. Uh, the NASDAQ on a percentage basis declined even more. It was down 65 points, which is 0.8%. And an opposite kind of move happened to the gold market. Gold was kind of up all day, maybe five, six, seven bucks. And then, you know, towards the last hour or so of New York trading, it was up about 10 bucks. And then in the final few minutes, it really surged. And gold ended up closing up about $17 an ounce. We closed right at, I think, the highs of the week, the highs of the day at $15.16 an ounce for the price of gold. So a very strong close 
uh, for gold. Gold stocks also rose on the day and a weak close uh, for the Dow and, and, and other stocks. So that may be telegraphing that we're going to have a down week next week in the stock market and a pretty big up week in gold because the return to quantitative easing should have produced a more favorable reaction in the stock market. After all, the drug addicts are about to get a whole bunch of drugs. And the fact that it's not producing the type of reaction that one would expect shows that a lot of you know this so-called news is already uh, priced into the stock market and we could be looking at another drop. After all, we are still pretty close to the vicinities of record highs and the markets are continuing to ignore all sorts of risks in the market. Uh, one particular risk is the political risk. I mean, look at the rise of Elizabeth Warren now in the polls. She is not only now beating Joe Biden, but she has widened her lead over Donald Trump in the general election. Now, I know a lot of people uh, in the markets who simply expected Joe Biden to be the nominee. They still believed that Trump would win. But even if he lost, they thought, OK, Joe Biden is kind of a middle of the road guy. He's a centrist, so no big deal. But now that it looks increasingly less likely that Biden will be able to win the nomination, that the most likely candidate to replace Trump is Elizabeth Warren, that ought to scare the daylights out of stock market investors. So maybe the failure of QE4 uh, to lift the markets and the prospects of a Warren presidency could see a decline in the value of the stock market and a surge in the price of gold. But I want to spend the rest of this podcast talking about uh, the student loan problem. And the reason that this is on my mind again is because the Democratic candidates are all unanimous in their belief that we have a major problem with student loans and the high cost of college. And they are calling for a, a government solution to this problem, right? And the solution that they are advocating is that we forgive either all the loans or most of the loans, and that going forward, we make college free, right? The government provides college for free to everybody who wants to go. Now, the problem with this solution is it will actually make the problem that they want to solve worse, or actually it will create a bigger problem than the problem that they're trying to solve. But the most ironic aspect of the whole thing is that the problem was created by government. It was created by uh, liberals who were trying to do good, right? They were trying to help students better afford to go to college. Except before the government got involved in college, college was not very expensive. I mean, not that many people went, but for the people who did choose to go, it was not that big a deal. It was affordable. The government made it completely unaffordable. But not only did the government succeed in driving up the cost of a college degree dramatically, right? but they also succeeded in destroying the value of that degree. I mean, that is an amazing accomplishment. To take something valuable, like a college degree, that was readily affordable for anybody who wanted to pursue one to take that valuable degree that was inexpensive to attain and basically make it extremely expensive while simultaneously destroying all the value to anybody who gets it. And so now, if you really want to set yourself apart, you need to get a master's degree or a PhD. You see, before the government tried to solve this problem, the problem did not exist. Right? The government really wasn't involved in secondary education at all. In fact, the first time it really got involved in a, in a big way was as part of the GI Bill, which was something that passed in 1944, which was designed to help uh, the American servicemen who were coming out of uh, World War II. They were coming out of service. And so it was a way to reward uh, the returning troops for their service and their sacrifice. And there was all sorts of programs uh, in there, but one of them was uh, money for college, where the money was sent directly to the college. It didn't go, it wasn't a loan and it didn't go to the student. It went to the college where you enrolled, right? And so, and a lot of people went to college on the GI Bill. And probably a lot of people that might not have gone to college went because of the GI Bill. Now, whether or not 
Uh, a lot of these people benefited from these degrees. It's hard to say. Some people might have uh, earned more money because they went to college, but a lot of people may not have, right? Because once you make it free, well, then a lot of people might decide to go who don't really benefit from it. But as long as it's not costing anything, you know, what the hell, you should give it a shot. But obviously, the biggest beneficiary of the GI Bill were all the colleges and universities that were able to get this money because now people were going to college that weren't going before because the government was paying. Of course, it wasn't the government. It was the taxpayers that were paying. And of course, there was a lot of fraud involved right there. You know, whenever the government is giving out money, fraudsters are going to try to get a piece of that. Right. So that happened, too. So there was a lot of problem. But that was really the government getting involved in, in college for the first time. Right. We're for, and these are just returning soldiers from World War Two. And other than that, it really didn't have an involvement again, really, until the 1960s, when the government really started uh, guaranteeing uh, student loans. And the whole um, uh, the sales pitch on that was because before the government was guaranteeing student loans, there were no student student loans. Right. I mean, when all these liberals are talking about this big student loan problem, the fact that we have one and a half trillion dollars plus in student loans. The fact that we have more student loans than uh, than credit card debt, right? The only reason that student loans exist is because of the government. Without the government, there were no student loans. I mean, who would loan money to a student, right? A student is 18 years old, 17 years old. They have no money. They have no collateral. They have no job. They're a lousy credit risk. The free market's not going to loan money to students, Right. But now the government comes in and says, hey, wait a minute, we will guarantee these loans. The government is going to co-sign these student loans. Right. So now loaning money to a student was the same thing as loaning money to the U.S. government. Right. They made loaning money to students the, the least risky loan that you could make. Right. Every other loan, you make a loan to a, a small business. Maybe they won't pay you back. Even if you make a loan on a, on a mortgage. You know, the house could lose value. The person stops paying. You could lose money. But student loans was risk free. You couldn't lose. All you had to do is loan money to a student and you had a guaranteed profit. So obviously, all the banks wanted to make student loans because you couldn't lose. All you could do is make money because there was an interest rate attached to the student loan. And so the government created a thriving industry of student loans. Right? Without the government, it wouldn't exist. Now, the, the way the politicians were able to get the voters to go for this is, you know, we lowered the voting age down to 18, right, in the 1960s. And so now you have a lot of 18-year-olds who are voting, right, and they're also going to college. So how do you buy their votes? Well, make college cheaper. Now, how did most people go to college before the government got involved? Well, they had two ways of going. Either their parents paid for the cost of college, and if the parents were well off, you know, that's what they did. And if their parents were not well off, well, they just, they got a job and they worked their way through college. I mean, that was very common. People worked their way through college. It wasn't hard. My father worked his way through college. My father's uh, parents, my grandparents, they didn't have a lot of money. You know, they were middle class or lower middle class. My dad always said he couldn't, you didn't know if he was upper lower or lower middle, but he was somewhere in there. But, you know, his father was a carpenter and his mother was a stay-at-home mom, like most mothers were. Didn't really matter what your husband did. He could afford to, to support the wife. But my father had seven sisters, so it's a pretty big family. And so there really wasn't any money to send my dad to college. In fact, you know, I think one the, his only other sister that went to college went to Yale, actually, but she went to art school there. He was the only one that actually went. He went to UConn and got a degree in accounting. But my father paid for his accounting degree by working as a, a waiter over the summer at you know up in the Catskills in a lodge. And just by working for a few months every summer, he made enough money to cover his cost of, of, of going to, to Yukon. And so what happened is these politicians went to young people like my father and they said, look, you know, this isn't fair. You know, you have to work these summer jobs. You should be enjoying your summer or, you know, some people maybe work while they're going to college and that takes time away from their studies. You know, it makes a lot more sense. Why don't you borrow money to go to college and then pay it back after you get your job? Because after all, once you get a college degree, you're going to earn a lot more money, you know, and therefore it'll be a lot easier to pay off 
the cost of college because you're going to have an hourly rate that's much higher than what you're earning now without a college degree. So why work now for a low pay when you can work at a higher pay? And then you won't have to spend as many hours working to cover college. And the interest rates, well, they're not going to be that high because we're going to guarantee the loans, right? So once we guarantee the loan, the rates will be relatively low. So this is a great deal. And the students thought it was a great idea. Yeah, who wants to work? I want to spend my summers on the beach, right? I want to have fun. I don't want to have to get a job and work my way through college. Taking out a government-guaranteed low-interest loan, that seems like a no-brainer, right? And that's how it started, right? Oh, yes, we're going to buy the votes of the students, and we're going to help them pay for college, even though it wasn't expensive. College was, you know, you could do it, right? Well, of course, once the government did that, right, once the government created this incentive, the universities aren't stupid, right? The colleges aren't dumb. They're like, holy cow, right? This this is a money machine. And then all of a sudden, they started raising tuition higher and higher and higher because there was now no longer any kind of objection in the market because whatever the price was, the students just borrowed the money uh, because the government was making all the loans available. And so the universities became bloated. They got bigger and bigger. They hired more and more administrators and department heads and you name it. And they started building, I mean, sports facilities or, you know, other infrastructure. You know, they became these gigantic bureaucracies. And, of course, we kept steering more and more students into these universities, because now, right, the universities have to market this product, this overpriced product, and everybody wanted to uh, push this narrative that, well, you need a college degree, right? Because if you don't have a college degree, you're just going to you're going to end up cooking French fries at McDonald's. If you want to have any decent job, nobody will even consider you until you have a college degree. So we, we beat it into the head of young people that you had to get this college degree. And so then that made them even less objecting to the increasing cost, especially since the money was being loaned to them, because if they didn't go to college, they were told, you know, they, they were nothing. They, they had no chance in life. And of course, you know, Prior to the government trying to get everybody to borrow money to go to college, you know, you didn't need a college degree. I mean, if you wanted to be a lawyer or a doctor, yeah, you went to college. But most people, 90 plus percent of the people didn't go to college, you know, up through the 1950s, the 1960s. And people did not go. Right. And if you had a high school diploma back in 1940, that was good enough for most jobs, not just blue collar jobs, a lot of white collar jobs. That's all you needed, right? The only thing we succeeded in doing by keeping kids in school to get a college degree is we simply delayed by maybe four or five or six years when they enter the workforce. So those five or six years where they could have been earning money and developing skills on the job, instead they're developing no skills and they're racking up a huge debt. And so now they, they owe all this money that they wouldn't have owed had they not gone. But they're not getting educated. I mean, I don't have, you know, the statistics to back me up, but I'm sure if anybody did the research, you know, it would prove that I'm right. But I'm sure that if you took a, a high school graduate in 1950 or even 1900 or whatever, like somebody that went through the ninth grade or not even high school is the 12th grade. I mean, you probably, I bet a junior high school graduate, I bet somebody that graduated eighth grade or ninth grade in 1950, I bet if you took that person and you gave them a basic test, mathematics, you know, uh, English, geography, history, whatever it was, you took a test and you tested those kids, those eighth or ninth graders, I bet the average score that you would get would be higher than today's college grads. That would be my bet, right? I bet we are educating people in college to a lower degree than we did in high school or junior high school. So they just stay in school longer, but they're not getting educated more. They're not learning anymore. They're just spending a lot of money and they are enriching the colleges and the universities who have been benefiting from this. And, you know, if you don't really believe me, I mean, I got some statistics about this. And, you know, I looked at the, the, the price of Yale University because I was living in Connecticut. And I remember I even mentioned this in my book, but I did a, a YouTube video 10 years ago. Uh, and you can see it on YouTube, Peter Schiff, uh, you know, college tuition or government programs pushing up college. I, I recorded it in in 2009 while I was running for Senate. And the impetus for the recording was I had done an interview on Face the State. 
And the topic of the GI Bill came up because, you know, they were trying to show that government is good and government spending does a lot of good. And this guy was using an example of the GI Bill to say, hey, Peter, would you have been for that? Because, you know, I was against big government, against government programs. And so he wants to know if I would have been against this popular program like the GI Bill. And so that's what prompted me to record this video a decade ago was to kind of talk about how even though I'm against uh, government aid to education and I'm against student loans and all that government involvement, I'm against it because I'm in favor of students and education and against government and the universities and the colleges ripping off our kids. But at that time, I did the video and I mentioned that the tuition at Yale University at that time was $35,000 a year. Well, I checked Yale University for the most recent year, and it's now $50,000 per year. So in the 10 years since I recorded that podcast, we've had a 43% increase in the tuition at Yale University. So that's a pretty big increase in 10 years, 43%. But I had some statistics on Yale tuition uh, going back, you know, for a long time. And you can actually see what college was like before the government got involved in subsidizing it, before the government tried to make it more affordable, right? So in 1810, Yale tuition for a year was $33, right? That's it. That was for a year. 42 years later, in 1852, the tuition for one year at Yale was still $33 a year. So you had a 42-year period where they didn't raise the tuition one penny at Yale University. And of course, remember back then, they didn't have anything. They didn't have typewriters, they didn't have carbon paper, right? They had no machines, right? This is your very basics. We have all this labor-saving devices now. We have all this technology. It should be cheaper to educate kids today than it was in 1810 when they were doing it, you know, uh, without any of these uh, tools and, and, and labor-saving devices. But you had this 42-year period without any increase in the price. Now, to put $33 into perspective, because people are like, well, what is, what's $33? I mean, how does that relate uh, to the $50,000 that people are paying today? Well, in 1918, or 1810 rather, and 1852, the price of gold was $20 an ounce because that it was fixed at $20 an ounce. So Yale University, for a year, you needed 1.2 ounces of gold. That was it. Well, gold today is 1,500 an ounce. How many ounces of gold do you need to buy one year of Yale? 33 ounces. So it was 1.2 ounces in 1810 through 1852, and now it's 33 ounces. What is that, like 27 times as expensive as it was back then? And there was no government help at all. There was no government aid. There were no student loans. There was nothing. Now, with all the government help trying to make college uh, cheap and affordable, it's 27 times the cost of what it was without the government helping at all. You know, here's another time period that I looked at. 1874 to 1918, right? That's a 44-year period, two years longer than the other period. Now, we had a little bit of inflation during that period because we started the Federal Reserve in 1913 and we, you know, we paid we paid for World War One. So here we actually had an increase in the tuition. So in 1874, I think the tuition at Yale was about $140 a year, right? So it was higher than the uh, the $33 it was in 1852, right? It was 140. But by 1918, it had risen to $160. So that's a 14% rise in 44 years, right? I just mentioned that in the last 10 years, the tuition has risen by 43%. But here, 1874 to 1918, it only rose 14% in a 44-year time period. Now, again, let's try to put this into perspective, not really using the price of gold, but kind of using wages, You know what, you know how much people earned relative to what it would cost to send your kid to college. Now, Henry Ford became famous for paying his factory workers $5 a day, right? That was a big, oh my God, Henry Ford is paying $5 a day to work at Ford Motor Company. And that was a big deal because it was higher than what, you know, other people had been earning for comparable work. And the main reason that Henry Ford did this 
is to reduce turnover because there was a lot of training involved in his workers. And then if a worker quit to get another job, you'd have to train them all over again. And so what Ford really did, it wasn't because he wanted his workers to be able to buy Model Ts or something. I mean, that's, you know, the socialists like to say, oh, he was just kind and he wanted to pay his workers more. And that's what helped the economy. No, no, no. He wasn't being kind. He was he was being a businessman. He was making a decision that he wanted to retain his workers after he paid money to train them. He didn't want them quitting to get another job and then have to train somebody else. So he paid them a high enough wage that he thought they weren't going to quit. So, but that was $5 a day. But the reason I'm doing that is because I know that these Ford workers were being paid $5 a day to work on the assembly line in 1914. Well, how much are assembly line workers uh, at Ford being paid today? Well, I looked on the internet and it's, you know, around $40,000, maybe a little bit more uh, for an assembly worker at Ford. So I want to compare, well, I mean, how, how does that compare to today's uh, price of Yale? Right. Well, the guy that was making five dollars a day back in 1914. Right. Let's say even 1918, he's still making five dollars a day. Right. If you made five dollars a day, I multiply five by five because he works five days a week and then multiply it by 52. Right. I mean, I, maybe you could, you know, I don't know, maybe you didn't take any vacations. I don't know. But if you multiply it by 52, you get thirteen hundred dollars a year is what a guy made working for Ford. Now, that such a guy, remember back in 1914, there was no social security tax. That didn't come until the 1930s. So there were zero payroll taxes. If he worked, you know, if he was in the state of Michigan or whatever, there was no state income tax. And the federal income tax had just started, but the brackets didn't start until your income was much, much higher than 1300 So a guy that earned $1,300 a year in 1918 paid no income tax, no federal income tax, no state income tax, no payroll taxes, no unemployment insurance, social security, none of that. So if you made $1,300 a year, you kept $1,300 a year. Your, your pre-tax income and your post-tax income were the same number, right? So he got $1,300 a year. Uh, it cost you $160 to send your kid to school. So divide $160 from $1,300, basically about 45 days, right? So a guy that probably didn't even have a college degree, probably didn't even have a high school degree, that was working on a production line at Ford Motor Company, it took 45 days, a month and a half of his labor to send his kid to school, right? This is Yale University, right? Obviously, there were probably other colleges that he could have sent his kid to that were cheaper than Yale, because this is probably the best college in the country, one of the best Ivy League colleges out there. So if it cost $160 a year to go to Yale University, you can imagine how much cheaper the tuition would be, you know, at you know at another university that would that's not as prestigious. This is this is the, the most expensive, right? And the Ford factory worker, he only had to work 45 days, a month and a half. Well, today, right, if you get somebody's making 45000 a year. Well, he's going to pay some taxes on that. He's going to pay Social Security taxes, Medicare taxes, unemployment taxes. Probably has to contribute money to his labor union, too, in order to have the job. They didn't have those labor unions back then, so you didn't have to pay any dues. Uh, now you got to pay dues. Uh, and you have to pay, you know, income taxes, state income taxes. And, of course, if you uh, are working, you know, at Ford, you know, you're making 45000 a year, whatever it is, your wife probably has a job because there's no way. I mean, if you're sending kids to college, right, that means you you have a family, right? You have a wife, you have kids. You're not raising those kids and putting them to college without your wife having a job. See, back then, back when a Ford worker was getting five bucks a day, his wife didn't have to work. He had plenty of money. He made enough for the whole family. So his his wife probably makes another 40000 50000 a year too. So when you figure their tax bracket, it's probably a lowball estimate for me to say that the after-tax income of the one uh, factory worker at Ford would be 40000 a year, right? Because that's only about a 10% total tax if they're making forty five. Even if he's making 50000 a year, you know, and his wife's making fifty, I'm sure collectively uh, they're paying 20% in tax when you add, you know, payroll taxes, state taxes, federal taxes. So let's say that the guy makes $40,000 after tax. Right. And again, I'm not even including, you know, health insurance because that might reduce uh, the pay a lot because, you know, that's another place where the government totally screwed up, just like education. I mean, health insurance was very inexpensive. Our health care, too, was very inexpensive 100 years ago compared to what people are paying today. But let's just set that aside and let's just concentrate on this guy. He's making forty thousand dollars a year. Now, Yale tuition is fifty thousand a year. That's one year and four months 
of work, right? So the guy working for Ford today on the assembly line, he has to work for one year and four months to send his kid to Yale, whereas 100 years ago, a Ford worker only had to work one and a half months, right, to send his kid to Yale University. Now, of course, the worker back then had no help from the government, right? The government was not involved at all in higher education. No subsidies, no loans, no scholarships. But it was inexpensive to send your kid to college, right? Either you had the money yourself or your kid got a job and he worked his way. No big deal, right? Today, with all the government help, all the government programs, you know, nobody could afford to go. Who could afford to devote a year and four months worth of their income just to paying for their kid's college? Nobody could do that. See, the government has made college so expensive by subsidizing it, by trying to help students solve a problem that didn't exist, by trying to buy votes, by promising something for nothing, right? All they were promising to do was eliminate the need to work your way through college. Hey, you don't have to wait tables, right? You can have fun. You can enjoy your summers because we're going to make it easy for you to repay your loans after you graduate. And, you know, probably for a few years, it probably worked, right? Before the colleges really caught on to this money machine that the government had created. Before they really had a chance to jack up tuition, it probably worked out. Okay, yeah, you got a job and now you paid off your loans because you didn't really borrow very much money because college really wasn't all that expensive to begin with, right? And you paid it off pretty quickly. And of course, early on, uh, the college degree probably still had more market value because not everybody was going to college. So to the extent that you had a college degree, you kind of stood out in the labor market. And so it probably did make it easier for you to get a better job than what might have been available to you if you didn't have a college degree. But fast forward to 2019, when almost everybody has college degrees, even people who can't read, even people who can't do basic arithmetic, right? They, you know, you could be a functional illiterate and still get a degree from some colleges. So the whole thing is meaningless, right? these college degrees. Everybody's got them. That's why I said that earlier in the podcast that they have destroyed the value of the college degree while they have increased its cost. So it costs more than ever to get one, and they deliver less value. Because really, what, you know, what do you have to show for uh, you know, four, five, six years of college? You just have a degree. But that doesn't evidence anything, especially if you look at how they've dumbed down the courses, how they've made it easier for people to get A's and even make it onto these dean's list or to, to graduate summa cum laude or cum laude. I mean, they keep lowering the bar uh, as far as uh, the grades are concerned. And look at all the majors. I mean, look at all the people that go to college and they major in a bunch of nonsense. I mean, sure, some people major in these the STEMs, right, the hard sciences, engineering, you know, mathematics, computer science, and they actually learn something. Now, they can probably learn these things you know, in the, in the private sector, too. You probably don't need to go to college to learn how to program. You can learn that, uh, you know, on the, on the job. Uh, but, you know, because of a lot of other labor laws and other ways the government has screwed up the entry level job market, a lot of people end up paying a lot of money to learn stuff that they could have been paid to learn if they could have done it in, in the free market. But you have a huge group of people who go to college and they major in these Mickey Mouse uh, courses. I mean, these liberal arts courses where all they're really doing is trying to get a degree, right? They're trying to get a degree with the least amount of work possible. And of course, since a lot of these people really shouldn't have even been given a high school diploma, right? Because nobody really flunks, right? So a lot of people are in college that shouldn't have even made it out of high school, but now they're in college. They can't really do much. So they have to find the easiest majors that they can find. You know, one of the easy majors is education. You know, that's why, you know, when I keep hearing about all these teachers, how they're underpaid relative to other people who have college degrees, believe me, a degree in education is, is, is relatively easy to get. You don't have to study very hard uh, to get a degree in education. It's not very challenging, not very demanding. Uh, and, and so that's one of the reasons that teachers uh, make less is because it's easier for you to graduate and get a degree in teaching, right? It's, you know, it's, it, so the easier it is to get the degree, the less work that's actually required, then the more people are going to end up with those degrees. But the, the whole 
uh, lending program and government program that we have, they don't differentiate, right? They're going to lend you as much money as you want. It doesn't matter what you're going to study. It doesn't matter how bad your grades were in high school and whether you barely graduated. You can borrow as much money as the guy who finished at the top of the class. And the guy who's, you know, knocking his brains out, majoring in mathematics or, you know, or, or engineering or architecture, right? The guy that everybody's making fun of because he's not partying on Thursday nights, you know, like everybody else. He borrows at the same rate. He borrows the same amount of money as people who get drunk, smoke pot, cut class, right? And major in Mickey Mouse stuff, right? They all, they all have the same terms. It doesn't matter, right? So this is a disaster. This entire problem never would have existed. Students wouldn't have all this debt. College wouldn't be so expensive, right? But for government interference in the market. But it's so ironic because now you have all these liberals, all these running for president. And, oh, my God, we have to do something about this problem. This is a terrible problem, and we're going to solve it. They caused the problem. See, they want to act as if this is some flaw in the free market system, right? Oh, my God, look at college, you know, all these for-profit colleges and all these universities, they are just overcharging people and they're raising their prices. And that's because it's a it's capitalism or a free market. So we just need government to take over. We just need government to give all the education for free. We'll forgive all these loans without even considering the damage they will be causing by wiping out the value of all these assets. Because remember, student loans are obligations of the students, but they're assets of the government. It's actually, it's one of their biggest assets, which means they're the assets for the taxpayer. They're the assets on banks' balance sheets. But if all these liabilities disappear, then all of the assets disappear. So there is a big uh, financial problem going on. And, you know, another thing, too, I hear all these politicians, they're very critical of the bankruptcy laws that says that, you know, you can't discharge student debts out of bankruptcy. Well, of course, the government did that. I mean, the government writes the bankruptcy laws. Uh, so if, if politicians are upset that student loans can't be discharged in bankruptcy, well, they got no one but themselves to blame because they're the ones that wrote those laws. Of course, they had to do that. Can you imagine if you could just discharge your student loans in bankruptcy? Everybody would do it. I mean, after all, when a kid graduates college, they are bankrupt. They got nothing. All they got is a diploma. Right. What's that worth? You can't repossess that. Right. You're 22 years old. You just graduated from from college. What do you have? You haven't had a chance to accumulate. I mean, maybe you have some stuff. Right. You know, you got some clothing, but that's that's not worth anything. That's excluded from bankruptcy. You don't you don't have anything. Right. You don't own property. Right. You don't have any businesses. You're, you're broke. So what would happen if you could discharge your student loans in bankruptcy? Everybody, the minute they got their diploma, they would go right to the bankruptcy court and file and expunge their student loans, right? So, so to eliminate that moral hazard, they had to do this. They had to say you can't discharge your student loans in bankruptcy. So that's why the students are stuck with these loans for the rest of their lives, because that was the only way they could have the program, because otherwise everybody would declare bankruptcy. So this is a problem. That was a complete creation of government where none wouldn't have existed. Education, higher education was fine. There was no problem there, right? If you wanted a college degree, they were affordable. Either your parents paid for it and it wasn't that expensive if your parents had money or if your parents were lower class or lower middle class or whatever and they couldn't afford it, well, then you got a job. But big deal, nobody graduated college with debt before the government got involved and created the student loan program. And now these guys want to pretend that government is the solution. No, their solution is going to make it worse, right? First of all, what would free college, right? Everybody goes to college. Well, that would just take a college degree and make it even less valuable than it is now, right? The idea that everybody has to go to college is complete nonsense. In fact, most of the jobs that college grads do today do not require a college education. In fact, if you look at what they're doing, because they learn nothing in college that has any relevance to what they're doing on the job. That is the vast majority. I mean, look at the YouTube video I made. Again, if you YouTube Peter Schiff College, if you haven't seen this video, I really love the video. I talked about it on the Joe Rogan podcast. I wish it had more views than it does. It should have millions of views. But I you know, took a camera. One time I was in New Orleans. I go to New Orleans every year and I was walking down Bourbon Street 
And while I'm walking down there, I am asking everybody who's working there. You know, these are pedicab drivers, bartenders, uh, bouncers in strip clubs, strippers, you know, garbage people, whoever I, I passed. I asked them four questions. Did you go to college? When did you graduate? You know, uh, what was your major and how much do you owe? And just about everybody that I talked to said, yes, they were they went to college and they told me what their major was and when they graduated and how much money they owed. But none of these people were working jobs that required a college degree. So, you know, if the government now just wants everybody to go to college, then it'll be like, you know, how they were saying, if you don't get a college degree, you know, you're going to be serving French fries. Well, pretty soon you'll, you'll need a college degree to be serving French fries. I mean, that'll be the, the floor, right? Because the, the companies start using this as a screening mechanism. So it'll, it'll, it'll even more destroy the value of a college degree. And of course, the colleges and universities, they always want to come up with these statistics, right, to show how much more money people make who go to college versus people who don't go to college, right? And again, you know, there's an old saying, figures lie and liars figure. You can basically do anything you want with, uh, with statistics, right? But the reality is, yes, people who have college degrees make more money on average than people who don't have college degrees. But it's not because they went to college. It's because the individuals who go to college, right, those individuals in general are smarter, more ambitious, and harder working than the people who don't go to college, right? And it's those qualities that are the reasons they make more money than the people who don't go to college. Because in today's day and age, I mean, who doesn't go to college? I mean, you have to be, you know, pretty dumb not to go, right? Everybody's going. All, all the smarter kids are going. So the kids that aren't going to college, they're not earning less money because they didn't go to college. They're earning less money because they're not as smart. They're not as ambitious. They're not as hardworking. Now, of course, I'm talking about generalities, right? You're always going to find circumstances where you have some really, really smart people that don't go to college or drop out of college, right, and don't graduate who end up earning a lot of money. I mean, some of the wealthiest Americans alive today, right, didn't graduate college, right? Zuckerberg at Facebook, he went to college, he didn't graduate, he dropped out. Same thing with um, Bill Gates at Microsoft. He started college, but he dropped out, right? He made a fortune. He didn't need a college degree, right? In fact, the wealthiest people in the history of America did not go to college. In fact, I pointed this out. It's interesting. If you go and you watch the YouTube video that I did about New Orleans, and now I'm looking at it, there's about 250,000 views on that video now. But on that video, in the description, I, I, you know, I wrote about some of the history of college. And I wrote about the fact that the three richest men in American history never went to college. So the richest American was John Rockefeller. And Rockefeller dropped out of high school. And he started working full-time when he was 16 years old. High school dropout. Richest man in history. I think his estimated net worth in today's dollars is about $670 billion. $670 billion. So if you think people today are rich with 50 or $100 billion, $670 billion was the net worth of John D. Rockefeller. And he was a high school dropout. Now, what about Andrew Carnegie? He didn't even go to high school. He never even started. Right. He dropped out of school when he was 13. Right. He achieved a net worth of three hundred billion dollars in today's money. No school beyond 13. Cornelius Vanderbilt. This guy dropped out of school at age 11, 11. He started his first business when he was 16. He achieved the net worth in today's numbers of one hundred and seventy five billion dollars. Right. So the richest men in history had no formal education beyond middle school. Right. And, you know, back then, colleges actually had a lot to offer, you know, that they don't have to offer today because, you know, there was no Internet back then. So if you wanted to learn, you needed books. Well, where were you going to get books at college? Right. You had to go to college to get access to these libraries and you had teachers. You don't need any of that. 
All the knowledge is there for free online. I mean, there is less need today. If it was easy for people to succeed and become billionaires 100 years ago before the Internet, it's that much easier for them to succeed now. So we actually need college now less than we needed it in the past. It's easier for people to learn on their own, on the job, if the government simply got out of the way. But what the government wants to do now is the government wants to make college free for everybody, right? Well, the most expensive thing that there is is something that the government provides for free, right? That is the problem because there is no free lunch. Somebody has to pay the cost, right? When you want to have low costs and high quality, how do you get those things? You get those things from the free market. Right. Because in a free market, you have goods and services provided by a privately owned business. And the owner of that business can only make money if he generates a profit. Well, how does he generate a profit? Well, he has to keep his cost low enough to be able to sell you goods or services and make a profit. So you have competitive pressures to keep costs down while at the same time to keep quality up because there's all sorts of businesses competing for the consumer's money. But when you have government providing something, it costs a fortune because there is no incentive to keep the cost down. In fact, there's every incentive to run the cost up. I mean, that's how governments work. They want to be as big as possible. They want to increase their power, their size. They Once the, the bureaucracies are there, they kind of grow. They're like a cancer. And that's kind of what's happening at these universities now because they're not really subject to the normal free market forces that would be there without the government money. But if the government completely takes over, it'll make it worse. In fact, I pointed this out. One of the things that Barack Obama did, and he slipped it into the bailouts, right? This was part of the TARP, was that they basically got the government directly involved in student loans, right? Before the government got involved, all they did was guarantee the loans that were made by the private banks. And, and Obama was saying, oh, look, let's take out the middleman. Why should the banks make a profit on these loans? Let's cut out the middleman and let's let the government loan the money directly to the students. And that started under Obama. And when that happened, I was the only person I know who was criticizing that. And I said at the time, this is going to take the education problem and make it worse. I said that college tuition would be rising even faster as a result of this, and the student loan problem would be even bigger because even more students would fall into the trap of borrowing money when the government was directly making the loans. And I was 100% right. The problem is a lot worse now that Barack Obama tried to solve it. And when one of these other Democratic socialists tries to solve it by going all in, right, by giving free college to everybody, then all we're going to do is we're going to delay uh, the day where our young people enter the workforce, they're going to they're going to have more and more years that could have been spent productively earning money and acquiring skills. And instead, they're going to be wasting their time in college, getting degrees that have no value at all, because now everybody is going to have one. And now if you actually want to differentiate yourself, you're going to be in school till you're in your 30s, you know, trying to get master's degrees and doctor's degrees. And who knows how much money these things are going to cost, because you're not going to get that for free. Your master's degree isn't going to be for free. So that's going to cost a fortune. This is going to be an even bigger disaster. But again, what I wanted to point out and the purpose of this discussion is to shine a light of truth on these hypocrites, on these presidential candidates, these holier than now trying to point out these problems without accepting responsibility for having created the problems in the first place and now promising to solve the problems with more of what caused them. The problems were caused by government interfering in the free market and getting involved in something which it should have stayed out of. But instead of recognizing the mistake that they made, they want it compounded. They want to get the government more involved in education. They want to they want to continue to prevent the free market from working. And again, I'm going to circle back because this is exactly what the Federal Reserve is doing. It, it's so amazing how all facets of government, it's all exactly the same, right? Government creates a problem. They, they interfere with the free market. Then they create a problem. And then their solution is more interference. They never reflect and realize, wait a minute, this backfired. We tried to make college more affordable and we made it less affordable, right? That's what they did, right? They achieved the opposite of what they intended. But no, all they care about is intentions. They don't care about 
the unintended consequence or the outcome, as long as they had good intentions, right? As long as they feel good about what they're doing, because nobody wants to be against these student loans because, oh, you're against education, right? How could you be against education, right? So in order to show that you're for education, you have to be for the government throwing money at education. But all that does is enrich the colleges, universities who have armies of lawyers, by the way, and lobbyists rather, to make sure that this gravy train never stops, right? Because the students are getting the shaft here. Uh, the colleges are the ones that are you know, making all the money, but nobody could be against it because then you're crucified uh, you know, in a campaign because you're against education. But the only reason that it costs so much is because of government. Again, it's like Harry Brown. I think he made it up. I don't know, but I always quote Harry Brown. Harry Brown always said that government is great at crippling you and then handing you a crutch and then saying, see, without me, you couldn't walk, right? That's exactly what the government did with education, right? They crippled us because they took education, which people could easily afford, and they made it extremely expensive. And now they say, well, college is really expensive, so we're going to guarantee loans or loan you money so you can afford to go. And now you're, oh, thank you. Thank God for the government, because if it wasn't for the government, I couldn't get all this money to go to college. Well, if it wasn't for the government, you wouldn't need all that money to go to college because A, college would be a lot less expensive and B, most people wouldn't even need the degree because the high school degree would be all they needed. But once the government cripples you, you see, now you got all these students that are totally dependent on government, right? They know that without government, they're never going to be able to afford to go to college, which they have to go to because they've been told if they don't go, they're a complete failure. So now they're going to vote for whatever politician is promising more Loans, which is exactly what politicians want. They want to put you into a position of dependency. So you become completely dependent on government. Then they've got you. Then they own you. They own your vote because you need their money. And now look what they're doing. They're upping the ante. They've now gotten students so indebted. They owe so much money that now these Democrats can say, vote for me and I'm your only salvation. I'll, I'll, I'll free you from this bondage. Right? We'll forgive these debts. The students don't realize that it's the government that put them in bondage. They're the ones that chained them up to these student loans. But now they've got them. They own these voters. And now that's kind of why they, you know, they want to even lower the voting age down to 16, right? So they get more people to promise something for nothing. But again, same as the Federal Reserve, right? The Federal Reserve, they put interest rates down at zero. When we have a debt problem, we have too much debt. Right. Why do we have too much debt? Because the government artificially suppresses interest rates. They won't let interest rates find their free market level. I mean, look, if the government interfered in any other market, people would know if the government decided to set the price of bread. Right. They're not going to get the right price. It's either going to be too high or it's going to be too low. There's going to be a shortage or a surplus of bread. Everybody knows that. Well, the same thing when it comes to credit. Government should not be price fixing credit. Credit needs to be determined by supply and demand. Where does the supply come from? All the people who are saving, the people who are putting money aside for the future, right? That they're not spending, right? Those are the savings, the pool of savings. Where does the demand come from? Everybody who wants to borrow money, students who want to borrow money, businesses who want to borrow money, homeowners who want to borrow money, state government, local government, everybody wants to borrow money. And then you take the supply of savings and the demand for that, and then you're going to get a price. Now, obviously, in a society like America, where everybody is borrowing and very few people are saving, interest rates are going to be high, right? And we want them to be high. Now, if we're not saving enough, high interest rates will solve that problem because high interest rates send a signal to the market, hey, save more. You're going to get paid more to save. Oh, and borrow less because borrowing is going to cost you a lot less. And of course, when rates go up, what borrowing gets eliminated first? Consumption borrowing, right? Because consumption loans don't generate any income, so it's harder to pay the higher interest. Speculative loans, people that are just speculating, right? Now you have a higher hurdle, so speculation goes down. So when interest rates go up, the only loans that are really made are productive loans, where people can invest the money and earn a return in excess of the rate of borrowing, which is what we want. We need more capital investment in this country, and we need more savings. But the Federal Reserve is preventing that from happening by keeping interest rates artificially low. But every time the market tries to correct the imbalance by raising rates to increase savings and reduce uh, consumption, we have a recession. And the recession is part of the cure. But now the Federal Reserve, oh, my God, we can't have this. We can't have people saving money. We can't have people not spending and going deeper into debt. What do we do? Oh, let's slash interest rates. Let's, help, let's get people to borrow more money.
So now you create a bigger bubble. Now it's going to burst in an even bigger way. Now it's even more painful to resolve. And then what? Oh my God, now we got to go to zero. You know, we got to do quantitative easing, right? And then, oh, now we have to go negative, right? They keep doing the same thing over and over again to perpetuate a problem that they created, right? We would have a vibrant economy, but for the government, but for the central bank uh, enabling the growth of government and undermining our free market system and distorting uh, the savings and investments and consumption in the market. The free market would do a much better job than the Federal Reserve. Just like if we had a free market in education, we'd have high quality higher education at an affordable price and nobody would need to borrow any money. If we had sound money, if we had gold as money, which was what was money before the government started operating this fiat system, we'd have a sound economy, we'd have a balanced amount of savings and investment, and everything would be fine. But instead, they just continue to repeat these mistakes. And whenever the Federal Reserve interferes in the free market and creates a problem, capitalism gets blamed. And the solution is always more central banking, right? More regulations, more government, just like when it comes to education. Well, none of these government solutions work. They always make the problems worse. When you when you get into bed with the government, right, you know what's going to happen to you. You're basically effectively making a deal with the devil. And the devil always comes back to collect. Thank you.